Hi, I'm Todd Austin from University of Michigan. You're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and today we have episode 235 for August 30th, 2020. Can't believe August is almost over. Crazy how fast this year is going. Uh, and we've got an interview today, a really interesting interview with Todd Austin from the University of Michigan. And we're going to talk about his group's project called Morpheus and how it's going to hopefully make all of our computers much more secure in the not too distant future. Now, I'll tell you right now, due to the nature of this, it is technical. Now, we do our best to explain all the jargon and explain things in ways that are not hyper-technical. That said, there's still a lot of terms we throw around, and there's a few of them I want to just quickly tick off before we get into the interview so that when you hear them, in case we didn't define them well, you understand what we're talking about. And a lot of these, as you might expect, are computer terms, um, very technical computer terms, some of which you've probably heard before, some of which you probably haven't. But before I even define these, just understand that <laughs> the technology is actually... You don't need to understand the, the, the detailed technology to understand the gist of what's going on here. In fact, we're going to take the time to explain this in a really interesting analogy with the human immune system that I think is very instructive and goes a long way toward explaining how the unique approach that this group took to improving computer security. All right, so real quick, let me just rattle off a few of these terms just to, to prime you in the brain long enough to remember them for this interview, and then you'll probably be able to promptly forget them. We talk about I.O. or input-output, which on a computer is, you know, writing things to a file or getting information over the network, collecting information through the keyboard and mouse. That's all I.O. of one form or another. We talk about the concept of a stack, uh, and a computer stack is really just a list or a queue in order. It's a stack because you can kind of think of it as piling things on top of one another. And if you're piling, you know, bricks or Legos on top of one another, you can put something on and take it off from the top or put something on and take it off from the bottom. But it's a stack and you take you take from one end or the other and it's just kind of a, an ordered list of things. In the case of computer stack, particularly a programming stack, the computer keeps a list of instructions to do in order, but sometimes it needs to jump around and go do a little bit over here and then come back and do a little bit over there. And so a stack is kind of a way for it to keep track of all these things in order. We talk a little bit about entropy and entropy you could really just think of as randomness. And some things are more random than others, so they might have more entropy. And when talking about computers, in particular, when you're talking about cryptography, you need a really good source of entropy, which we talked about recently in one of our shows. The term address space layout randomization is thrown around, or ASLR pronounced ASLR, and we'll define what that is, but we kind of say it really quick, so I wanted to make sure I uh, at least define the acronym. Todd briefly threw out the term GDB, which if you're a programmer, you've heard of this, it would be the GNU debugger. GNU is a, a kind of an open, I think it's open source project for various computing utilities, and GNU, like the animal, is what they, is their, kind of their symbol or their mascot or whatever you want to call it, but it's, it's so all their tools are GNU such and such. So a GNU debugger, or GDB, is a tool that software and developers use to kind of poke at their code and you know, as they're testing it to figure out what's going on while it's executing. <laughs> I know. 
I know that even talking about these is probably already making you go, oh my God, what are we getting into? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that that's it. That's really the the terms I want to make sure I talk about. Uh, we, and we do try to explain them a little bit as we go, but I thought I would take the opportunity to prime you with those. So as they come up, uh, you're a little better prepared. Uh, some other kind of acronyms thrown around, uh, and they happen to be related to Defense Department stuff. So as you can imagine, they're probably kind of arcane. Uh, DARPA, which we've talked about before, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, used to be ARPA, known probably for helping to create the internet back in the day, uh, created by, I, looked, I had to look this up, created by President Eisenhower back in 58 as a response to Sputnik. I did not realize that until I looked, looked it up. And they've got a couple programs and there, obviously has some Star Wars themes to them. And, and this is such a common thing with defense or the government, honestly, in general, where they come up with what they call retronyms. They, they come up with what they want the acronym to be, and then they reverse engineer the, the words to fit the acronym, which is not the way you're supposed to do it, but that is very common in the U.S. government. And so two programs that we talked about, one is called Sith, uh, one is called FET. And so Sith in, in Star Wars, of course, is some of the bad guys. In this case, it's S-S-I-T-H, which stands for System Security Integration Through Hardware. Uh, and FET, which I'm guessing is a reference to Boba Fett, one of the main characters in the original Star Wars series, is finding exploits to thwart tampering. So anyway, we talk about those. And the last one, last one before we get to the interview is uh, something called RISC. And in this case, it's R-I-S-C. And that stands for Reduced Instruction Set Computer, as opposed to CISC or Complex Instruction Set Computer. Again, you don't have to know these things, but as <laughs> you don't have to understand what they mean. But just know that we're throwing them out. That's that's kind of at least what they stand for and what they refer to. And you don't have to worry too much more about it than that. What we're going to talk about today is computer security and a novel approach to making our computers, like all computers, more secure against attack by bad guys. Some of the worst kind of attacks, some of the most powerful attacks. And when, you know, when we created computers a long time ago, you know, we kind of thought about security, but the bad guys are really, really smart. They've got a lot of time in their hands. And in some cases, they've got a lot of resources as well. Like for state actors, they've got a lot of money and can throw a lot of people at these things. And so they find chinks in the armor. They, they spend the time to figure out like architectural or framework, like low level ways that we built our computers that are vulnerable. And if you can figure out how to exploit one of those, you can get up to some real damage. And so Todd and his team took a really interesting kind of a holistic approach to computer security and came up with this project called Morpheus, which we're going to talk about today, which is, to me, just fascinating. So let me just stop talking about it and let's actually get to the interview. Todd Austin is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. His research interests include computer architecture and secure system design. Todd is also co-founder of Agita Labs, a startup developing privacy-enhanced computation technologies. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you very much, Kerry. It's great to be here. You had a really cool article, and I've since uh, watched a couple uh, things that you've made on YouTube about this, and it's called Morpheus, and it's about uh, computer security, and it's really fascinating. Uh, and I know it's going to be technical, and some of my audience is probably technical, but I'm really kind of excited to explain this in a way that everybody can understand because it's really cool, and I think it's got so much promise. So uh, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. <laughs> 
I've seen what you do, and I know you'll. I know you're up for it. So, but let's talk kind of briefly though about security in general and software in general, and uh, you know, ransomware and data breaches, you know, identity theft. You know, these kind of get most of the headlines today. But yeah, you know, computers and software are really at the heart of many, many things. And if it's got a battery or if it's plugged into the wall, it's probably got a computer in today. And it's, which means it's probably running software, which means it's probably vulnerable, uh, particularly if it's hooked up to uh, a network. So many of our critically important systems today have computers, many computers built into public utilities, as we saw with Colonial Pipeline, uh, vehicles, medical devices, you name it. And you in one of your talks I saw had some really interesting examples of some of these kind of devices that have actually been hacked in the real world. So I was wondering if we could start by maybe kind of painting a picture for us of how these computers are vulnerable and how they've actually affected things that people would would understand in their everyday lives. Sure, sure. Yeah, as you said, everything is just jam-packed full of computers. So in that particular talk, I was highlighting a particular class of attacks called system-level attacks, which are attacks that are going to try and, you know, wedge, the attacker tries to wedge their technology into an existing piece of technology. And a really amazing one was the G-Pack, mm -hmm. where the reporter was driving a Jeep Cherokee, you know, uh, vehicle, and two security researchers were able to infiltrate over the air the system software that was controlling the brakes and actually forced the, the Jeep to brake while the reporter was driving it. And that, that was a four alarm fire yeah. for the industry. I mean, I, I personally had, I, I, you know, we're, I'm in at university of Michigan. We're right next to Detroit, you know, there's auto workers everywhere. And, and I could see from the time that attack happened, you know, a year before you talk to people from Ford and GM about security and, oh, yeah, we got it all figured out. After that, they're coming to us to talk to us because it was really quite striking that system could be attacked. But, you know, ultimately, you know, there's literally hundreds of millions of lines of code in today's automobiles. Right. And, and, and that really leads to a lot of vulnerabilities. Well, and I think it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, didn't they get into Jeep? Well, so it's connected. I don't know if they got it in through like an OnStar thing, like if actually through through yeah. that or their entertainment system and then got to the brakes from there or something like that. Yeah, I believe it was the OnStar system, but there was a continuous over the air communication capability. They came in through that, you know, basically hacked in through the those wireless interfaces but what was so amazing about that attack, they then had to jump over to other systems. And to get to the actual braking systems, you have to get onto these, you know, internal buses. Mm -hmm. And the fact that those things are connected was really just seemed like a really, you know, why does the entertainment system have to have a logical connection to the to the brakes? Right. Seems like you really want a least privileged approach to that kind of design. Right. <laughs> Uh, one of the other ones you mentioned was a Boeing 757 attack. What, uh, that was one of one I actually wasn't familiar with. What, what was that one about? Yeah, that was a Department of Homeland Security demonstration. And they went in, a passenger in the plane went in through the, you know, or someone acting as a passenger went in through the entertainment system and then got into the avionics of, this, mm. of the system. And then that was classified. They didn't, they didn't say how that would happen. But again, it's one of these situations where, you know, the, the entertainment system in the jet is somehow intermingling right. with the electronics that is flying the thing. It's, 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 and you know, it's, it's striking. <sighs> yeah. We would call that poor design, bad compartmentalization for sure. My colleague, Kevin Fu, he, he demonstrated an attack many years ago where he hacked into a pacemaker Ooh. that was installed into a, you know, not a cadaver, but like a, a body simulator. Mm -hmm. 
And and that system was that I mean, he, there was almost no security in that system oh, at all. So part of the problem here is that these systems are very big and complex, and they have a lot of connections that they perhaps don't need. Mm-hmm. And then the the other problem is, you know, these these systems are just they're not really built from the standpoint that they think someone's trying to hack into them. Mm-hmm. And when someone goes to hack into them, uh, it's you know it's it's pretty bad. I remember reading about a one of those um, morphine delivery systems in the hospital oh, where, you know, you, you hit a button uh-huh. on it and uh, it gives you morphine until you know, you've had your allocation for whatever period of time it is. And then the, someone hacked into one of those and the hacking approach was hook terminal up to the RS-232 port in the back and pressed enter and had root. Oh my God. <laughs> so it was, it was, that was, that was bad. My, my colleague, Kevin Fu is now at the, I think the FDA working there as a sort of a, uh, good <laughs> in the system consultant <laughs> trying to develop sort of best practices on how to build these very critical devices that should have some notion of security in them. Okay, well, I think that paints a pretty clear picture about about how these things could go sideways. All right, so you know, we talk I talk about computer security a lot on this show, but we don't often delve into like the real fundamental concepts of like how computers and software actually work. But I think for today's discussion, that's got to be a necessary foundation we've got to start with. So this is going to be tricky, but to the best you can, explain in as sort of you know as least jargon as you can. How does a computer work, like a, a CPU, and, and how does it run software? And, you know, lay that groundwork so that we could talk about sure. then how you hack that. Sure. So computer systems, you know, all the way from the big servers running at Microsoft and Amazon, all the way down to your smart toaster, you know, they have a CPU in memory and some I.O. capabilities. The CPU is an electronic device which interacts with the memory, and the memory contains program. And data. What program is are commands that tell the CPU what to do. And and you know the whole world of computing we have is built on these commands like take these two numbers and add them together, or see if this number is less than that number, or and, you know move this piece of information from here to over to there. And using these very simple little commands, it turns out you can build you know layers and layers of complexity in Linux and Windows and you know, PHP and all the other things that are out there on top of this, and and and, and you get then the world of of, of computing, mm-hmm. and it's all built on these very very simple little command sets. And in in a sense, system level hacking, which I'm really involved with, is really about taking those commands what the programmer specifies, and then sort of moving the system over to a set of commands that the attacker specifies, mm-hmm. and through a variety of tricks and deception and various other activities uh, that, that the attackers will do. Because once they can get your computer to run their code and they can install software, they can do bit mi- you know, Bitcoin mining on your system, mm-hmm. they can surveil you, et cetera, et cetera. So what are the key concepts and how the computer decides what code to run and whether code is runnable and how to kind of, because code is complex, so it's not, it's not just a straight linear set of instructions. There's a lot of times where it says, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, then I'm going to jump over to this code over here to do kind of a specialized task. And then when that's done, I'm going to come back and keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, and I know that that, that mechanism alone uh, accounts for a lot of ways that the bad guys uh, try to infiltrate our systems to either have them run their code 
or in some really crazy cases, actually kind of take the, my own code and run it in just the order that they specify, not the order I specify. Exactly. How to, talk exactly. to us a little bit about, about those techniques. So one of the fundamental data structures that's inside of every computer system is the stack. And the stack is basically, it's like a, a scheduling ledger that tells the computer, what do I do next? What do I do next? And when we build systems, we spend a lot of time in software programming, try to just break things down, the divide and conquer approach, break things down to the smallest little pieces so we can, you know, we just have to solve this small problem and then we can put these small solutions together to solve a bigger problem, et cetera. And all that modularity, as we call it, mm -hmm creates many, many different tasks that the computer has to do. And it uses the stack structure to basically decide the order in which to do those tasks. And then, you know, your, your, your listeners may have heard of this, you know, stack smash or stack overflow, these kind of terms. These are, these are specific kinds of attacks where the attacker is trying to manipulate that ledger of what needs to be done next and trying to introduce into that ledger, hmm, do this thing that I would like you to do because, you know, I would like to have some of the time on this computer and get to do what I want. Yeah. And so, you know, for example, you know, Intel has a new technology coming out called uh, CET technology. And this technology uh, protects that stack using what's called a shadow stack, where the programmer has their own stack running. And then Intel's system in the back has this sort of protected stack in the back. And so if someone tries to manipulate the programmer's stack, it'll deviate from the shadow stack and we can tell that someone's been mm -hmm. up to no good. Right. So another thing that they do, and this is, uh, I want to bring this technique up in particular when we're talking, because now that we've talked about this is how the bad guys do what they do, obviously, you know, the makers of, of these chips, Intel and, and so on, have tried to come up with defensive techniques. And one of the ways they've done this and I think it's kind of has some interesting parallels to what you guys did is address space layer randomization, ASLR, ASLR, where because the bad guys are taking, are taking this stack as you talk about, which is full of these addresses of where to do the next thing. Like, where do you want me to find the next bit of code to run? If the bad guys know enough about the software to know where the next thing is to be done, they can actually kind of inject their own different pointer like and redirect the code to go somewhere else. So you're probably going to do a better job than I am. What is address-based layer randomization? How do, how do, what's the problem and how is that trying to solve it? It's a fundamental technique to protect systems. And what they are doing with ASLR is they're injecting uncertainty into these internal ledgers on what I will execute next. Uncertainty in, in the fact that how it's organized, where it's located, in the memories, et cetera. And it actually changes every time you run a program, it changes. That uncertainty means that if I wanna manipulate, like you're gonna do task A, B, and C, and I want you instead to do task A, D, and C, I need to replace B with D. Well, if I don't know where B is, then I can't do that. Right. And so the uncertainty makes attacking very hard. The challenge is, and I want to introduce a word here, mm -hmm. uh, the challenge is how much entropy does the uncertainty introduce? And entropy is basically the probability that you can guess it right, right? So mm -hmm. uh, you can take ASLR in a modern computer system, and it basically creates about 2 to the 18 bits of, or 2 to the 18 uncertainty. So on the order, of, you know, less than a million to one chance that you could guess the right value. And, and, and most people would think, oh, 
you know, what's the chance that you could guess a number between one and a million? Mm -hmm. It's very low. But if I'm guessing a thousand numbers a second Mm -hmm. and I have patiently wait for a week, I can eventually guess the right number. So techniques that try to protect systems with uncertainty, which is exactly what Morpheus did. You want to have loads and loads of entropy. And Morpheus, for example, uh, the system that we built and, and people tried to attack had 204 bits of uncertainty in it. So that's, you know, two to the 204 different possible conditions for the system. And that when you get to that level of uncertainty, it's just it's not even worth trying to guess. Right. You have to find another way around that mechanism to get in. But uncertainty is a really great way to uh, protect systems. I like it because it doesn't try to be smarter than the attacker. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when we try to fix all the bugs or try to verify the software, we're trying to be smarter than the attacker. Mm-hmm. And sort of the fundamental tenet that I work under is you cannot be smarter than the attacker. <laughs> Anyone who reads security news will have a uh-huh. jaw-dropping moment every couple of months when somebody figures out something that is so incredibly amazing. And so the idea that you can outsmart the attackers, I think is, you know, that's that's not a great approach. So what you really want to do is you want to deny them the information they need to accomplish their nefarious tasks. If you can deny that information, then I think you can really do a good job at protecting the system. But ultimately, they always try to guess. <laughs> They're yes. very clever, very clever. That's a great segue because I, I, I kind of want to talk about this um, at a high level before we dig into the specifics of Morpheus. And which is easier today? Is it attacking or defending? I mean, are, who's got the upper hand when it comes to that? And are the security techniques that we're currently using, like prior to Morpheus or things like Morpheus, are they more reactive or more proactive? How does security work today? I mean, attacking has always been easier than defending. And that is because to attack, you just need to have one vulnerability. Mm -hmm. You need to have one piece of knowledge that lets you into a system. And to defend, you need to make sure that there are zero vulnerabilities. (laughs) And that means that, and that's proving something doesn't exist, mm-hmm. which, you know, all the theoreticians out there, all three would know <laughs> that proving something that cannot exist is one of the hardest things to do in mathematics. And so it's a completely asymmetric mm. battlefield. The attackers have it. In fact, it's so easy to attack. They they package up attacks into frameworks like Metasploit. And they even have a pejorative term for attackers that don't know anything about the mm-hmm. attacks they're doing. They call them script kitties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but to defend a system, you need sort of deep knowledge of your vulnerabilities and your attack surface. And you need to anticipate what attackers who probably know more about the system than you do and you designed it. You know, it's, it's really a, an incredibly uh, difficult thing. In terms of reactive or proactive defenses... ASLR is very much a proactive defense. It's trying to stop an attack that it doesn't even know what the kind of attack it is. It's just saying, I'm going to make it really hard for you to manipulate this internal state of my program. But probably the most common technique to protect systems today is patching. Mm. And that is 100% reactive, right? That is zero day discovered, zero day fixed, zero day patched. That is a reactive state. And it's very hard to get to a point where a program doesn't have more vulnerabilities that can't be taken advantage of by attackers. And that there's really a couple of reasons for this. One is showing that something can't be attacked requires mathematical proofs, right? You have to say that something cannot happen. And, you, you know, you can't run Microsoft Excel 
with all possible inputs, right? It would right. take till the end of eternity, right? right? So you can't do it by testing. You have to do it by proof techniques. Mm. And we call that formal verification. The problem with that, though, is we can only prove tiny little programs. A few years back, uh, Microsoft had a project called SLAM, where they did formal proofs on what vulnerabilities were not in device drivers. Mm. And the only reason they could do this because device drivers are really well contained. Mm. They're really sort of stylistic in how they're programmed. Mm -hmm. And they were able to actually do these mechanized proofs and say these things couldn't happen to it. But just general software, software that's being developed, you know, we cannot prove that they can't, that there's no vulnerabilities in these systems. And then two other problems, right, is while you're proving this system doesn't have any vulnerabilities, the people over the, the wall, you know, the cubicle wall are writing code. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're just doing more bugs and more, right. more stuff. And then finally, even if you could prove that something didn't have vulnerabilities, how do you prove that somebody won't invent a new vulnerability that no one in the world ever knew about and that, you know, the code that you wrote or the system that you built is vulnerable to that? That's, that's you know, it's really incredible that's that's what they call the unknown unknown and and that is a huge challenge so reacting by patching systems i you know my kind of my mission is let's get away from that mm-hmm. right it's expensive it's taking you know, you've got a lot of downtime you know you got to have a software bill of materials you got to worry about every little piece of software on every system let's try to build systems that are just really hard to hack i think that's a, a proactive and better approach so I noticed you you carefully didn't say systems that are impossible to attack, and you've you've avoided that. You've been kind of saying how hard that is to to do, and so I think a, a lot of people have this notion of they want to be one hundred percent secure, but nothing is one hundred percent secure. Fort Knox is not one hundred percent secure. So what what does it mean to be secure enough? Like because I think that's a, I think that's an important an, an important concept to, to grasp is that we we're, we're not ever shooting for one hundred percent. We're shooting for secure enough. So what does it mean? to be secure enough and how hard is it to get there where, you know, there's a knee somewhere, like there's a cost trade off. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. When Morpheus was announced and, and we did really well in, in red taming, they said, this chip is unhackable. Nothing is unhackable. Nothing, absolutely nothing is unhackable because there's always that next level you can go to mm-hmm. to hack a system. And the, the, the example I always like to give is this is, the focused ion beam level of hacking. So what this is, is a focused ion beam is a electron microscope that can measure voltages on a running chip. <laughs> and they use them, they use them to, uh, they use them to debug chips when they come out of the fab mm-hmm. for the first time and they want to say, does this chip work or not? They, you know, it's like a $10 million device. And they, they use it to debug the chip. You know, it's like the it's the GDB of the hardware bring up world. Mm-hmm. And if you have one of those and you have the ability to stop the clock on a system, you can basically stop time and learn every piece of information that's in a system. All the keys, all the memory. You know, how do you stop that? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is just if someone wants to get in, they can get in. So really it comes down to this notion of like, how do you make me less attractive than everybody else. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I teach my security class in Michigan, I talk about the bear race. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. The bear race is you're camping with your friends. You're in the mountains. All of a sudden, you hear a rustle in the woods and out jumps this ginormous grizzly bear, starts running the group. And the question is, how fast do you have to run to not get eaten by the grizzly bear? <laughs> and it's not the fastest. You just got to be the second fastest right. or greater or second slowest or greater right. uh, in speed to not get eaten by the bear. So, 
I think that the goal in terms of secure system design is really to build a system that is so hard to hack that the attackers will move on to the next system. Right. Now, the, there's other things. So like if that system is protecting military secrets mm. or President Trump's taxes, you know, I mean, <laughs> this kind of stuff will create significantly more effort on the part of, of, of attackers. You know, if, if the loot that's inside the system is so juicy, people will work harder to get in. And also if the system itself, if it's very popular, right, like mm-hmm. Android phones, people want to get into those because you can get into one, you can get into billions and right. you get into billions of systems, you can do lots of stuff. So there's, it's a really complex equation. But in terms of system design, one control we do have is we can make stuff harder to hack. And, and I think we can make it a lot harder to hack. One of the other things you kind of alluded to as well is the complexity is really the enemy of security. The more complex something is, just the more knobs and buttons and things there are that you could tweak that might give you access to it. And you had a really interesting graph in one of your presentations that kind of showed the relative complexity of anti-malware and malware over the years. I know it was a graph, but describe for us what you found when you when you looked into that. This was a DARPA study a few years back where they... The way we quantify complexity in the computer world in terms of software is we count the number of lines of code that exist in packages over time, mm-hmm. right? And so you could, you, could take, you could do this for Microsoft Excel. You could look how big it was over time, and you could see the complexity grow because number of lines of code is very much proportional to the complexity of the system. So in this study, they looked at the complexity of systems that were meant to protect software packages that were meant to protect systems like antivirus and network monitors and various other unified threat detection systems and they look at the number of lines of code in those over time and they saw that they would increase in size roughly 2x number of lines of code every two years i mean they're growing exponentially in terms of their size and then they looked at the growth in malware so this is the stuff that is you know, being injected either through phishing or system level attacks. This is the entry point. This is the piece of software that comes in to get into your system. And over 30 years, excuse me, 40 years, it grew 30% in size. Just not 30% per year, but 30% in the entire time. So that really suggests that, you know, that we're not doing a great job at making injecting malware into the system. A whole lot harder. Otherwise, we'd see the complexity of malware starting to grow significantly. Fascinating. Okay, great. So, with that as background, now we get into the really juicy stuff. You and your team, you know, from what I can see, kind of, you know, looks like you've got kind of decided to take a step back and really look at the problem of computer security at a very like holistic level, and kind of asking the the very basic question, like, what are the ideal properties of a secure system? Tell us about that thought experiment and the resulting epiphany that you guys had from that investigation. Yeah. So when you're an academic and you work in security research, you're, you know, you, you, you're always chasing the funding. (laughs) So uh, I had been working on funding that allowed me to do formal analysis of software. And and we'd, we'd come up with some techniques to prove that certain kinds of code injection was not possible on very large, it was very scalable, very large software systems. And I worked with my PhD students on this. And over a period of about five years, we were able to pretty much close down this one kind of code injection. And then DARPA 
which is the U.S. Department of Defense mm-hmm. research arm, interacts a lot with university systems here, and they provide funding. And they, they put out these calls for projects, and they put out a call for a project called Sith, which was to build a computer that could stop seven classes of attacks. Mm. And that was, you know, things like code injection, information leakage, privilege escalation, uh, crypto manipulation, et cetera. There's seven basic CWEs, you know, classes of CVEs, you know, attack vulnerability types Mm -hmm. that were to be stopped over a period of three years. And so I thought like, okay, it took me five years to do one. (laughs) So if I'm going to do six more, I'm going to need, you know, uh, 30 more years. And this is a three-year project. So I definitely need a different approach Mm -hmm. to take on this particular challenge. And so at the time I was, you know, I was following the work of a researcher named Stephanie Forrest from University of Arizona. And she, she had this, epiphany that if you want to build better secure systems, why not study the human immune system? Because the human immune system is the security system of the human body. Right. And it's, it's striking how much similarity there is between the mechanisms we've invented. And all these are invented by people that probably didn't know anything about the immune system, but amazing amount of of similarity. So at that time, I really sort of decided I, I, you know, I dived into Jane's Immunology, which I, one of my colleagues at Michigan, she said, that's the book you got to hmm. read. And, and, and we started to look for ideas on how to build a system that could stop emergent attacks. Now, an emergent attack is it's an attack you've never seen before, and you got a pretty good chance to stop it. And that's what the immune system does, right? For, you know, even though we were bunkered for a year because of COVID, the chance that any of us would die when our body got exposed to COVID, a disease it's never, ever mm-hmm. seen before, is pretty low because the, the, the immune system is, is pretty good at figuring out how to stop a disease it's never seen before. I mean, the reason why we're bunkered is because of how we provision hospitals, not because of the immune system. So we went in that direction. And it's no accident that that we refer to computer viruses as viruses, right? That That's because they share similar properties. In fact, I mm-hmm. as you were, as I was watching your thing, I, the you almost said this, and it seemed a novel coronavirus, it's novel because it hasn't been seen before. And it so to me, like a novel virus is sort of like a zero day, right? Yeah, very much. But imagine, you know, you don't get to install new systems in your body right. unless right. you get a a vaccine, right? That does help. Uh, we could talk about the analogies of vaccine in the computer world. I think we could definitely have analogies. But your system you were born with can figure out how to stop that. It doesn't need any upgrades to stop those diseases. It's really quite amazing. So talk to get us into some of those details because you had a really interesting chart where you actually kind of walked through you know, the various you know three high-level layers of, what, of the human immune system and how that sort of maps to uh, computers and, and software protections. Yeah. So the three layers of the immune system are the anatomical barriers, the innate immune system, and the adaptive immune system. So the top layer, the anatomical barriers, it very much follows the approach we use with patch-based security. It's the idea of keeping bad stuff out, right? So this is your skin and this is your mucus, right? Mm-hmm. So the The skin keeps stuff from getting into your body, and your mucus pushes stuff out of the ports of your body. And so that is like patch-based security, because patch-based security is fix the vulnerabilities that would allow an attacker into my system. 
right, is create a shell around my software and my data that is impenetrable, unimpenetrable. Now, in the world of patch-based security, we try to become perfect, but we never are, and systems always get hacked. But your body realizes that there's no perfection in stopping things from getting into your body, so it has this next layer, which is the innate immune system. And the innate immune system stops attacks that we've been subjected to for you know, millennia, right? Is part of your evolutionary development of your immune system that it can stop these kind of bacteria and these kind of viruses really fast. Mm -hmm. The built-in protections. And this is really like this is like the Microsoft CFIs, which is a technology that stops control flow injection, or you know, Microsoft DEP, which stops, you know, data, you know, stack injection, or Intel's NX bit, which stops stack overflows. Mm -hmm. These are things that people have put into our systems because we anticipate these vulnerabilities. And so we're going to do a really good job of stopping these kinds of vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. But again, your body knows that it's going to get hit by a new virus and it doesn't want to wipe out, every, you know, it doesn't want to get killed. So it has the adaptive immune system. And what that does that's where the T cell is the superstar, mm. and the T cell is able to identify unknown attackers, find a way to bind to them and destroy them, and then basically kick off a memory process that, in the form of a memory cell, which you know allows you to do that again in a much faster fashion. And it's really interesting to look at how that last layer works because there really isn't much of an analogy for that last layer mm. than there is for you know the, in the computer world because that last layer, the adaptive mucus, it is stopping stuff that the body has never seen before, and it is completely based on randomization and attack detection. So. The word inflammation, we're all familiar with that word, that is the attack detectors of the body. They are signaling to the body that something is wrong, something is hurt, something is being attacked. Inflammation are these chemical processes that kick off the immune system. And what the immune system does is it just tries to destroy things in your body that it doesn't see. And it has this ability, and this ability that Morpheus had as well, has the ability, these T cells, to see what is you, and what is not you. And there's a really interesting process mm -hmm. that happens in your bone marrow when these T cells are born. They basically, there's a process where you are dangled in front of these T cells, and if they attack you, then that T cell is destroyed. And so as long as the T cell won't eat you, and you know, and then there's things like Guybury syndrome where that breaks down, but in general, in a normal healthy person, the T cells don't, they don't eat you. But they identify things that are not you, and then they try, and inflammation tells them this is, that that's a bad thing, and then they try to attack that thing. The way they attack is through these sort of genetic markers. They have these ways that they can attack to certain kinds of entities in the body. Like the coronavirus vaccines we take teach our T cells how to attack these spike mm. chains. And so in the process of figuring out how to attach to a spike chain, the T cells have a process to sort of figure out how that's done. And so chances are if a virus comes in your body, there's no way to stop it with T cells that are in your body. So what they do when you're sick is they go into this process called uh, somatic hypermutation, and they just start randomly mutating in your body, creating new forms of T cells until they find one that can attach and kill that disease. And when that happens, that T cell sort of graduates 
to this memory cell stage, which allows it to stay around and tell, you know, if this disease ever comes back again, it gets triggered and it starts producing those T cells again. Um, really interesting. And then as any good security research will tell you, you want to protect your protections as well, because any mm -hmm. good attacker will try to attack the protections. Mm -hmm. And so the T cells are also very good at protecting themselves. In particular, all your T cells are these all these unique little snowflakes. They share no DNA with you. Hmm. They're completely unique. There's like 50 to the third power possible different oh, wow. kinds of them. And it really quite quite amazing. So if, if a, a virus comes in and tries to attack your immune system, you know, they'll zero in on one or a small class of T cells and then the rest of the T cells will attack you. Huh. Which, you know, when I read that, I thought, well, well how does AIDS work, right? Because AIDS takes mm -hmm. down the immune system. And what AIDS, the AIDS virus does is it attacks the system which creates the T cells and tries to slow that mm -hmm. down so that randomization problem process slows down to almost stopping and it lets whatever viruses in the system basically take over. Huh. The analogy in the computer world is like, I can't figure out how to stop your randomization attacks. I'm going to now attack your random number generator. Right. That's like that's like the analogy in the computer world. It's, right. it's striking how many analogies exist. Okay. So, fascinating. This is just mind-blowing. So, okay, now that you've figured this all out, you've had this epiphany, how do you bring it home? How how did this all of this inform what you did with Morpheus and how does how does Morpheus work? Yeah, so we decided we're going to we're going to lean into this randomization stuff. We're going to make it so that basically we're going to make it so that the surface, the attack surface that the attackers are trying to attack is so complex and fast moving. This idea of moving target mm -hmm. defenses. So not only can it be unknown, but it has to be changing. And that's because, you know, it's harder to hit a moving target than it is to hit a target that's just sitting in one place. If you don't know where the target is, you can search for the target and find it and shoot at it. If the target's moving really fast, it's super hard to hit it. The faster it moves, harder it is to hit. In terms of the attacker, that means understanding the state of the system, the internals of the system, because I want to graft my technology into your technology. And if I don't understand your technology, then I'm going to study it, and that's called probing. And, I'm, I, and I may do it for days and weeks. Um, and once I understand it, then I will graft my technology into your technology. But the idea of creating uncertainty in the underlying system and then changing that uncertainty on a regular basis creates this really difficult to attack system. The analogy we used when we wanted to explain this was you're trying to solve a Rubik's Cube. And every three seconds, I, t I rip it out of your hands and I re-randomize re re it. And it'd be really hard to solve. You, you would have to anticipate my moves, which you can't because I'm right. going to use a true random number generator, something that cannot be predicted. So then you just have to be fast. You've got to be faster, right? The way to attack a Morpheus machine is basically you got to be super fast to, to attack it. You basically have to mechanize your attacks. All right. And and, and we'll, we'll definitely get into that aspect in a minute. 
So is the, is this approach? I hate to call it static, given what you the way you just described it. But is the randomness, is the frequency at which you do this, is it the same, or does Morpheus somehow recognize, kind of like the body does, when it's being attacked? There is some inflammation. There's something that triggers it to say, I, "I need to step up my game. I need to not only randomize this often. I need to randomize more, or churn more." I think that's a term you, you use. Yeah. So is it churn. how how dynamic is Morpheus to understanding? That it's being attacked and does like the body does it does it learn does it is it able to uh remember things or and maybe even share that with other systems after it's learned the answer to that today is no but the answer five years from now is going to be mm. yeah for sure because what's really cool about morpheus is he's got this knob mm. right which is the churn rate and when you turn it down to almost zero you're giving a lot of agency to the attackers to study the system mm. But the performance overheads are very low, very essentially zero. And when you turn it up really high, it can consume, in the worst case, about one third of the resources of the mm. system when it's just you know continuously randomizing everything, you know, because it, it has to it has to do some work to do mm-hmm. that. And then the system is it's just it's locked down in a way that is incredibly difficult. I couldn't even imagine how one would attack that. You'd have to attack the systems that create the randomness, in my my opinion. And so, you know, today what we do, we just set it to a not, we set it to like two minutes. Mm. <laughs> we just set it there and we say, okay, we hope nobody can get it into two minutes. <laughs> and, and the way we do randomization is with crypto. Mm. Crypto is a beautiful randomizing mechanism mm-hmm. because the way crypto works is it takes, if you're taking two bits in and two bits out, the order of the two bits out is completely random. Mm. So it's, it's really a nice way to randomize stuff. And to unrandomize, you have to break the crypto. And so we use fairly strong crypto. And so we know, you know, two minutes is going to be really, really hard for someone to figure out what that randomization strategy is. And then the next time we're going to we're going to re-randomize it again. And we're going to use what's called true random values. We spent a lot of time building mm-hmm. random number generators, which harnessed phenomena, which were unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And then, then sort of the key phenomena you want to harness is radio signals mm-hmm. in the air and junction noise mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like noise that exists at the quantum level right these are things that are very hard to predict and when you do that then you can you can basically churn in a way that's not anticipatable now long term i would really like to do is figure out basically with attack detectors you know, today when we use security attack detectors, we do something like, oh, you know, under these scenarios, there's an attack. And then you have to notify a human being and they have mm-hmm. to come back and say, oh, what's going on here? Oh, it's a false positive. This is not really happening or, you know, et cetera. With Morpheus, all we're going to do is we're going to turn that knob up when we see something. Oh, it looks like something might be happening here. It's a little fishy. And there's lots of things that are fishy mm-hmm. that can happen in the system. And, and we just dial the knob up. And so your system runs a little bit slower, but it, it's way harder to attack. And then one thing about Morpheus is it doesn't just randomize one thing. It randomizes everything that doesn't break normal software. So, it, you know, if you've got programmers out there, we randomize pointers and the way the codes representation, the way the address space is that we randomize a bunch of stuff because more is better. Mm-hmm. And we only do things that doesn't break software, just break security attacks. And then when you turn that knob up you have you basically have three knobs and depending on the attack you might want to turn one knob up first before you turn the mm. other 
to sort of close the window of opportunity for an attacker. And that's where this idea of immunization could come in, where if you could learn for a particular attack, I see these features of the attack, you know, it does this and then does this other thing. Then I know I want to randomize this aspect as quickly as possible because this is the information that attacker is trying to gain. And then you close this window of opportunity for an attacker to some very, very, very small window. And that that would essentially be what immunization would be. And that's what immunization is in our world today. It, you're closing the window over which your body mm. has to figure out how to stop this particular disease. Yeah, and, that, and there's an amazing amount of similarity there. I'll say there's one difference between the human immune system and computer security that sometimes influences what we do. Mm-hmm. And that is the human immune system doesn't really care about you, the individual. <laughs> right. Right. It doesn't have a huge amount of entropy in it. And sometimes things get through and can kill you. In fact, the human immune system is trying to predict the species. It's entropy. It's randomization is across everybody right. in the world that's affected by that pandemic. Right. And its goal is to make sure that we got enough humans at the end of this event that we can go on. And computer security, that's not really a good approach. This is, you know, we care right. about every little computer. And so the, the difference there is we want more of that entropy that I talked about earlier. We want massive amounts of entropy. So it's just so hard to get through these defenses. Right. So from an immunology perspective and an evolutionary perspective, the, the system is is the species, not the individual. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Okay. So you did talk about, you said, uh, you kind of said it at two minutes now. Some of the stuff I read I read that you did, though, had it down to like 100 milliseconds or something. And, and you actually talked about how those values actually have real meaning in the real world. Like, because like the shorter that value is, as you said, yeah. it limits what they can do. And and one of the most interesting aspects to that to me is how close the bad guys are to your system. Talk to yeah. me about, about how that works, how that dial works, and, and where the optimum value is depending on those characteristics. Yeah. A really sort of powerful kind of attack in the world of system security is the remote code execution mm-hmm. attack. And nothing shows this more than going to a website like Zerodium, mm-hmm. which sells attacks to whoever. Right, anybody. But, and they, they have a listing of how much they pay for attacks. Anything $200,000 up to two three million million are all these remote execution attacks. And this is an attack where you are on the other side of the world. You're sending a packet to a system. And when that packet arrives, it'll return some information. You'll see that information. And then you will send another packet, which will attack the system. So you're going to probe. You'll learn something about it with your first little sub-attack. And then you once you know the information you need, you're going to then send your payload as it is, which Mm -hmm. is going to inject your technology into the other system. There's a certain amount of delay between when you acquire your information you're probing about, like how is the uh, stack oriented, and when you can kick off your attack. And that, that delay is really defined by how close you are to the computer you're attacking. So if you can get churn all the way down to like 10 milliseconds or less, then you really have to be physically proximate. You've got to be on the system, attacking from the system, because it takes 10 milliseconds just to get through the routers right. to the outside world. And that's a really interesting space to get to, because then you'd you'd basically force attackers to come local to, to do their probing and, and to launch their attacks. All right, so tell me how tell me how successful this has been. I know that you had a really interesting test of this recently. How'd that go? It went really well. Um, 
one of the aspects of being in a DARPA program is they're going to want you to design your technology, then build your technology, and then test your technology. And when you, you know, normally when you build computer systems, the testing is how much power does it use, how fast is it, and those are pretty easy tests to do. You just run the software you care about, and you measure all those characteristics. When you're building a secure CPU, testing it is a bit of a challenge, right? How do you say that it can't be hacked? Right. I, I always tell my students that strong security claims plus four bucks will get you a latte at Starbucks. <laughs> right. <laughs> So the only really effective way to test the security of a system that we know about is red teaming, where you essentially engage very skilled, you know, white hat attackers to basically try to penetrate your system. And there's a lot of good companies out there that, you know, have these stables of really talented attackers that work for the good of protecting systems by finding vulnerabilities. And uh, we worked with a company that, essentially put our system up in the cloud. We had to put a challenge application on that that people could attack. Our particular system was running a uh, an operating system and then on database on top of that, and then there was a, a REST interface on top of that, which basically allowed people to probe that mm-hmm. database for information. Uh, and it was a it was a mock COVID nineteen uh, research study, and you could you could pull all kinds of information hmm. out of it. And then the goal of the attackers was to get inside that system to you know remotely attack that system, get inside and pull out some of the juicy bits from the database that weren't exposed on that on that REST interface. And DARPA, you know, the SIT program was basically designed to protect programs even if they had vulnerabilities. Hmm. So we were encouraged to publish the vulnerabilities in our system (laughs) and so there were vulnerabilities there to be had and we also had to make versions of the system available to the attackers so they could build their own software and try it out then we just our little our baby we let go of our baby and it was gone we didn't we all i could see was one graph which showed how many times were people trying to attack our systems? How how much was our system was running? And and I could see the graph for the other people in the program as well. And you know, over time, you know, you'd see the graph would go up. They were working on it. every once in a while, you'd see this huge spike. You know, and that obviously they're throwing more cash on the pile because these researchers work for bounties. Mm-hmm. That's why they call it the FET program, by the way. And the bounties were, you know as big as $50,000 to find mm, a vulnerability wow. in these systems. And uh, they, no vulnerabilities were found in our particular system. Wow. In my startup, I'd recently been working with some of these companies, and I, and I, I ask them, I go, what's the probability you go into three months of testing with one of these top uh, penetration testing firms and, and nobody finds a single vulnerability? And that, that's really rare. It's really rare. So that was a really exciting result for us. We even got approached. People try to get our keys. <laughs> wow. We, 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 we got fished a couple times. Mm. Uh, just people try to get access. Wow. Now, I don't know if this was one of the researchers, but there was, there was some disagreement of whether or not they should be able to you know, see what? our unencrypted binaries. But it was, it was a really great result. I was really proud of my students. Uh, there was a team of uh, three students that worked on it. It was really, really fantastic job they did. So, okay, a couple more questions, and I'll let you go. Uh, what I know that 
the techniques that you've developed here are for a certain class uh, and a very important class of, of hacking techniques. But uh, talk to us about what Morpheus doesn't address. Like, what, uh, it doesn't address all possible attack venues. So, how does Morpheus fit into the taxonomy of types of attacks and most popular attacks, and which ones doesn't it cover? Yeah, it is. It's really powerful at stopping system level attacks. So, this is these are the attacks where either remotely or locally, uh, you know, a really skilled attacker is trying to graph their technology into your technology. They're trying to just trying to sort of take over your software or exfiltrate your data. The kind of attacks you may have heard of are like stack smashing and buffer overreads and return-oriented programming and Spectre and Meltdown and all these other sort of system-system level of attacks. And these are a big chunk of how you know, attackers get that foothold Mm -hmm. onto systems. You know, things we don't, you know, we don't help you pick a good password. You definitely want to listen to this show to learn how to do that. You don't, you, we don't help you, you know, stop getting fished, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and those kind of things. So there's a whole other part of the world that, that, that doesn't, but you know, I saw a report a little while ago about ransomware, like how do ransomwares get into systems? And it's about, you know, it's roughly split evenly across phishing system level attacks and, you know, various other things that, you know, so it's, it's important, you know, we really have to come at all these problems from many different angles, but yeah, definitely system level attacks taking a bite out of that would really be important to make the world a safe place. I saw this really great uh, cartoon uh, the other day. It was it was a metaphor, a boxing ring, and you know, and there's a the, the announcer in the middle, and, and on the one in one corner was all these amazing technologies for you know antivirus and intrusion detection and and all this stuff, and then the other corner was Dave. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it, you know, it's the thing is like the weakest link is at this point is definitely going to be the people, you know, not, you know, so the systems true, are getting yeah. really good. It's the people that we got to worry about now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one yeah. more question. So the obvious question is how soon can we see this? When is this going to happen in real world technologies? You know, and what do you, you know, if I, if I'm a hardware maker or a software maker out there, how do I take advantage of Morpheus? It's a couple avenues. So we built Morpheus in a framework called risk five. And maybe your listeners have heard of Risk Five. It's an open source instruction set. It came out of Berkeley, but there's a bunch of companies that do it. Intel's investing in it a big time, and it's just a it's an open instruction set and open infrastructure, and it's really popular in sort of low end products. And we're working with them to introduce our extensions that we use to do this randomization and churn into their instruction set. And we're hoping, you know, one day to be able to make that uh, an extension to that world and then people can build it if they want and just use it. So can I use this in a standard, you know, Intel processor, Apple's M1 processor? Can I use it in IoT devices? You know, will this eventually be applicable to to anything? And does it require hardware upgrades? It would require hardware upgrade and then software upgrades as well. Okay. Not the software that you know, developers and application developers run, but it requires upgrades in the operating system and then upgrades in the compilers and the tools used to build the software. And how soon can we expect to see this in the real world, do you think? When are we going to start seeing this roll out? I, I hope that we will see this technology or technologies like it in the next, you know, and then for sure in the next decade. You know, I mean, my mission is to really show people how powerful these ideas are and then people will grab onto them. They yeah. will. I mean, I'm, I'm, people are asking me to talk about this everywhere in many, many different companies. I'm really quite excited about that. 
Well, I am too. I myself am also doing a startup. I'm on leave from the university, but I'm doing <clears> a post-Morpheus technology that is I'm even more excited about. Well, that was really amazing, and it's very, very promising. I can't wait for this to come out into the real world because Lord knows we need it. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, Todd. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Todd for coming on the show. That was a lot of fun. Really kind of spoke to the engineer in me, and I hope hope you followed along. And again, you know, you don't have to understand the technical details to really kind of understand what they're going for here. And it's really, I think, fascinating that, that we that they looked at the human immune system and kind of looked at the various layers of that and realized that there's something you could model from the human immune system to protect computers. And he said maybe in the next 10 years, I honestly hope we see it sooner than that. But these things do take time, especially when you're talking about this kind of low-level computer architecture kind of stuff, because these chips, these chips are designed and fabricated over the course of several years. Uh, by the time Intel comes out with its latest chip, that thing was probably designed, I don't know, three, four, five years ago. So yeah, it takes time. But these are great ideas. And, you know, once we kind of get these technologies and these ideas built into our processors, it will make it a lot harder for the bad guys to break in. So it's just really, really cool technology. And I'm glad we had a chance to bring Todd on to explain it to us. And so then, you know, because I'm an engineer and I couldn't resist, I, when we were done with the interview, I, I said, all right. Todd, take the gloves off. Let's let's talk engineer to engineer. You know, explain to me in purely technical terms, you know, what's going on and what you guys did. And, I, and so that is going to be bonus content for my patrons. And if you're not already a patron, check me out at patreon.com. Just search on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. There'll be a link in the show notes. And that bonus content will go out uh, very soon, if not today, maybe tomorrow, and be available to all my patrons. Also, for my patrons, I put together a little kind of a slideshow, and I went through some of the pictures I took at DEF CON, and so I narrated those and did a little video kind of going through some of the pictures I took. And so it's great to be a patron. Not only can you get some of this bonus content, but you can interact directly with me on Discord. You can give me feedback on the show. You can you can suggest news items for the show. We've talked about all sorts of things, and I'm really enjoying that. So uh, if you haven't looked at it, give it a look, patreon.com, and search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And one of the other things I recently gave to my new patrons was the ability to get one of my really super cool security-enhancing challenge coins. There's only 100 of those on the planet, and there's only about 60 of them left to give out. And I will be coming up with another sort of promotion campaign to give some more of those away, probably during October, which will be National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So stay tuned for more information on that. Now, next week we got another news show, and... And there's never a dull moment, unfortunately. There's a really big Microsoft Azure Cloud database breach that we need to talk about. And a really crazy, horrible Razer mouse hack that if you if you have the right mouse and plug it into the computer and know what, you, and know what you're doing, you can actually get full admin privileges on that computer. That and much, much more. And after that, we got another really cool interview where we talk about how your car, including ones that you rent or borrow maybe stealing data from your phone and you not even realizing it. Among several other privacy concerns with cars, something we have never really talked on the show about before and something I've been wanting to talk about for a while. So that is really going to be a fun interview. Check that one out for sure. So subscribe if you haven't. I would love to get some great reviews on the podcast. iTunes is probably the best place to do that, but wherever you'd like to listen to it, drop me a review that really helps get noticed. No more new reviews on the book of the podcast that I found anyway, uh, but as those come up, uh, I will read them here on the air as a little way to say thank you. 
If you go to the website firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, you can sign up for the newsletter, you can read the blog, you can find my, all my social media contacts, you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and LinkedIn and Mastodon, and <laughs> I try to cover most of the bases. But if you really want to get like the latest and greatest stuff, like if you know there's a hot new bug or something you need to fix or a software patch you need to get, that's usually Twitter is where, and Facebook is where I'll post those. If for some reason you like to go to YouTube for your podcasts, even though they're audio, I do post them there. And on YouTube and Facebook, I think even, they, they, they auto-generate subtitles. So, you know, if you're into that, you can find it there. So that'll do it. Thank you for tuning in. We'll talk again next week. So until then, stay safe, get vaccinated, help others get vaccinated, get your booster when your time comes, wear masks, please. We've got to get rid of this stupid COVID virus. We need to get back to some normalcy, and frankly, we need to save some lives. So until next week, as always, everyone... Don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>